Hey everyone, this is Derek Stone. And this is Conrad Geringer. And you're listening to the Working Triathlete Podcast. Today, we're going to discuss uh, some aspects of the 70.3 Ironman World Championship. We'll discuss some of the pros that, that took the podium, the experience from the athletes that were on the race course. Um, and then Conrad's also going to share his perspective as a spectator and a coach that was walking around the venue. Um, so we'll have some pretty unique you know, perspectives based on the time that we were on the course or, you know, at certain different locations based on when the storm came through. Conrad, um, I guess if you want to start by just talking about the race morning and what you experienced and then we'll go from there. So I was obviously in St. George coaching. You competed. I know we had 12 working triathletes who qualified and showed up. Things that made this course unique. So obviously the it was in St. George. Typically it's hot and dry. And that that was not the case this year. This year, basically every age group except for the pros dealt with some crazy, crazy weather. You know, 50 mile per hour winds, hail, rain. And so that threw a unique wrench into, you know, athletes' races. And it actually affected different age groups more than others. Um I know that men's 55 to 60, definitely, they, they face some difficulties on the descent. I know one of our athletes, he uh, was an excellent, he's an excellent cyclist and he was kind of blown off, off the road into a ditch. Uh, he was perfectly fine. I think that conditions were not what athletes expected. That's probably the main item that everybody's talking about. It was just weather and and conditions. And I know that you experienced it firsthand. I was kind of, I wasn't up on the top of Snow Canyon descending, but you were. So what were conditions like when, when you got to the top? And I think everyone expected the race to be, you know, 95 plus degrees, you know, and, and hot and probably dry. Uh, and it was anything but that. It was borderline cold you know, on the, on the bike course and, and very wet. So when the storm came through, I was at mile 35. So just before climbing Snow Canyon and you could start to see the weather roll through and you could start to see a couple of lightning strikes. And that's when I, I knew I was like, man, this, this could be a day where we get pulled off the course and we don't get to see the finish line. So mile 35, that's when the rain started coming and it came very quickly and then the hail and then the winds. And I remember seeing car, like giant pieces of cardboard come across the road one cyclist in front of me, you know, dodged it, but like it could have very easily impacted someone at that time though, too, as you're climbing, we're going through some rollers, some general rollers and going up, you know, it wasn't really impacting you too much because you just had to put the power out to get up it. But descending is where it got a little dicey on some of those rollers where you had to be really cautious. You know, the winds were, were gusty. So I saw people really, you know, just riding down the hills on their bullhorns, you know, riding their brakes because they want, they didn't want to risk anything. And rightfully so. So as, as we climbed Snow Canyon, you know, it was still wet. It was, it was windy, but by the time I started climbing, it wasn't terrible. Uh, the descent, it was still wet. There was still some gusts, but I was able to kind of open up there. I know other age groups probably had different experience going down Snow Canyon, uh, where, you know, if, if there's big gust, it was something that you had to be really cautious about anyone that had a disc wheel, I think, uh, especially in the age group race, it was probably at a disadvantage at any point of the race because it, it was so gusty that you were risking staying up on your bike at that time. That's what I heard. And I know the front wheel also makes a big difference. So athletes who are running a deep front wheel also probably ran into some issues. And 
you know, I would say th- this race is kind of weird in that there are two different transition areas. They're about what, about 15 miles apart. So the swim takes place in, in hurricane Utah, um, which is just outside of St. George. And that's, you swim in a reservoir. And, uh, so the transition area, so T1 was, you know, it was obviously a large transition area, but it was nice because it was wave starts. I know Jenna working triathlete, she was one of the last waves and she went off at like 9 50 AM, you know, for context pros went off at 7 AM and all the other age groups in between. And so I was still in T1 just cheering all the athletes on throughout the morning. So, you know, I was in T1 for like five hours before I took the shuttle to St. George, which is where T2 is. I could just watch the storm brewing in the distance. And it was weird because in the West, the sky is, is enormous. It's large. It seems like it's a bigger sky over there. And you could see the mountains, you know, the, the brown mountains and the desert. And, and you just see these dark clouds kind of rolling over. And, and I'm like that that's snow Canyon, like (laughs) over there, that, that direction is snow Canyon started getting reports from other athletes and, or other spectators actually. So one of their, an athlete's mom was there in, in St. George and she called me and she's like, it is pouring over here and there's lightning in the distance. Like what's, what's going on over there? Cause Jenna was in the water at that point. I'm like, it's, there's no lightning here. It's not raining yet. But Jenna got out of the water and, you know, when she got out, then I was about to head over to St. George with my wife, who was also cheer squad. And as we were getting on the shuttle, like the rain started to come down, the wind started to pick up. I mean, sand was blowing everywhere. We got on the shuttle and started driving away. We looked down and you could just see athletes who would normally be an arrow. You know, they were up on their bullhorns and they were like, their bikes were twitchy. So the consensus was that the conditions felt like Mad Max Fury Road. I mean, it was surreal. It was like you're on another planet because, you know, the, the terrain is like Mars, sand, rocks mm-hmm. everywhere, just like the desert. But then it's dark out. The skies are just black and there's wind everywhere and it's ominous. So it it was kind of interesting. You know, there's a sense of danger there, but if you take a step back or you ignore the fact that you might get blown off the road. It was, it was sort of neat to see it. And and fortunately all of our athletes rode the bike course safely. They didn't take major risks because there was no reason to the world champ. The main success is getting to the world champs. And I know some of our athletes that they just wanted to enjoy the race, which, which is fine. So they had fun. It was, it was definitely a weird, a weird course, um, a weird day. Like I said before, like no one expected it. It was pretty, it was unique. And it, it's one of those things too, like where the adversity helps you build character. And I know we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about like what the takeaways were, but I, I want to jump back to the swim for a little bit. And mm-hmm. it, it is unique that the world champs always have the age group rolling starts because they kind of stagger the, the age groups, one to minimize drafting, but also get every, get everyone off the course as quickly as possible. The reservoir was super clear. So like swimming in the morning was pretty cool. Uh, the water temp was right at 78. So really comfortable. But as you swim, we, we swam through a couple different age groups. And as we caught the tail end of some of the other age groups, you could see like their form in the water, which is pretty wild. You know, swimming in Tennessee, you literally can't see in front of your hand. 
but the swim in the morning was pretty awesome. However, you know, it is going through like a washing machine as you approach those other age groups. The one thing I'll, I'll say too, is every, I think everyone anticipated using like clear goggles for the most part. You kind of forget that you might start later in the day after the sun rises. And that was one thing that I wish I would have wore mirrored, mirrored goggles rather than clear because I couldn't see after the sun came up, you know, going, mm. going out in the water, but coming back was fine. Uh, you could see pretty well, uh, but still just a washboard out there. It seemed like the, the swim course was fair. Didn't seem fast. It didn't seem slow. You know, you look at the top athletes. I know, well, Miguel, one of a working triathlete who I coach, he swam 26 minutes, just right around 26 flat. I know the top of the field, you know, you had, and it's a different dynamic in the pro race, obviously, because you have athletes to work with. But I think Canute, he swam right around 24 minutes and it was non-wetsuit swim, didn't have floaty legs. <laughs> but, you know, you swam about, you said what, like a 29, 30. So a minute slower than in Gulf Coast. Gulf Coast. Okay. Yeah. You're a good swimmer and I think you have good body position generally. So that's to only lose a minute compared to Gulf Coast. I think that's, that's pretty good. I would say it was fair. The, the only challenge, the, there's a couple of times where I probably could have been a little bit more aggressive in the water. Um, I definitely felt pretty comfortable getting out of the water. So it, it was, it's like, like you kind of mentioned the pros race, you kind of know what's going on because you have people to work with the age group race as we're passing other age groups, it skews like your perception of, of the rate of perceived effort because you don't know how fast you're going. And so you might assume you're going faster and it's just hard to tell at that point. Exactly. Exactly. And I know from athletes, especially the faster ones, Miguel and, and, and Jenna, and I know that you said this and Seth, that it was just kind of like a washing machine, but also they just were swimming around people. Mm -hmm. The whole time. So they were kind of weaving in and out and they didn't really have clear water. They couldn't settle. Nobody could really work with anybody. I mean, it just kind of depended. You had maybe some athletes who went out hard and then other athletes who just tried to ease into it. But that's just part of racing, especially in the age group ranks. It's just nowadays, all of the starts are going to probably be rolling starts. And it's, it's a strange experience. So I think you have to kind of really practice sighting and, you know, moving forward, especially the top athletes who we work with in the age group ranks, they just need to learn how to swim efficiently around athletes Yeah, or maybe learn how to take lines that, you know, maybe aren't the, the most direct, but it will allow you, you know, starting to the outside a little bit, uh, even if you're a, a good swimmer, just so you're not battling other bodies. Were you able to see the pros exit the water? Yes. The water was pretty low this year because uh, of just drought. The viewing area was was raised, and it was possible if you were adventurous to kind of climb down the rocks onto like this beach area where I think there typically is water, and you could kind of walk to right to the start. I didn't do that because I wanted to see our athletes running out of the swim exit and running down uh, the transition chute because you could see every athlete and you could cheer for them and they could see you you get really close and it was convenient seeing that. But if you wanted to, you can sit on these bleachers and kind of look out and pros went off and the top guys were as expected. I think uh, Ben Canute pretty much led the whole swim. He swam right around 24 minutes. You know, you could see the packs. So you have the top guys in, in that front pack. There was another pack. There was a 
about a minute back. And I think that pack was the pack where, you know, Gustav was, you know, the front pack, you had Ben Canute and Daniel Backergaard. He was, he was up there. Sam Appleton is a great swimmer. And then you had a second pack, which was about a minute back. And that's, that's Eden. Eden was in that pack. So Eden swam, you know, right. Just under 25 minutes. He was 24, 54. And then you had a bunch of other athletes in there. So Jackson Landry, who was in that pack, it's interesting looking above because you see exactly how far back a minute really is in the water. It's not a huge amount. <laughs> and then after that pack, you had kind of the third pack and that's where Sam Long was. And that was, so he was about two minutes back. So he swam right around 26 flat. That gap looked pretty large to Eden because uh, you basically saw the first guys coming in and you had 150 meters or, or so to the second pack. And it just shows you how, you know, the, the spectrum of, of swimmability among the pros, even uh, it's, it's a pretty wide spectrum. And that was actually a good swim for Sam. So I was, you know, standing up and you saw Sam kind of swim. And I, I don't know if he was leading that pack or he was drafting, but you thought he had a lot to make up, but then, you know, thinking about the time gap, and the deficit that he's surmounted in the past, you realize eh, it's, it's, it's really not that much. So I think he kind of showed that, you know, even with his swim ability, he gets a lot of heat for his swim and he had the slowest swim in the top 10 by, by like a minute, but it didn't matter. He, he was obviously able to, to surmount that and run into second place. I mean, it was cool to, to watch, watch the pro race. They all go out hard. So you know, the first 400, it's basically a sprint. And I know that Sam, he said in the race recap that he posted on YouTube that he's like, it was a race to the the turnaround. Like he, he, was, he was talking about how the first 800, like it was make or break. If he didn't swim well, that first 800 and he wasn't in contact that his whole race would be over. You know, I think he kind of executed well and, and went hard. Pro ranks, you got to train to go out hard and then kind of cruise and recover and whatever pack you're in, you just need to relax. He's gotten a lot better in the water and his gap is getting closer and closer to the, the front pack, but still super strong biker and runner. So it'll be interesting to see. And he's still young, so he has time to develop too, which will be right. pretty cool to see over the next couple of years. That's right. And then the bike, I think that's the next piece. Yeah. And so this bike course was, was pretty hilly. I think 3,500 feet or so. Do you remember what your training peaks file showed? Or your yes, file showed? it was right around there. The, so the one thing I'll say is it, it was hilly and obviously you go up Stone Canyon. That's a big climb. It's about 1100 feet on that one climb alone. What I'll say is I think the biggest takeaway is having the proper gearing would have been pretty beneficial on this course. Mm -hmm. And so having a big chain ring on the front to be able to push going down the hills that, that you'd be able to put out the power as you descend. However, this race with the weather, it might've been a little bit different just based on the, the elements that day. Having that, that proper gearing would make a big difference, but also just being comfortable going really, really fast downhill too. I think this is a course where you look at it on paper and it's like, okay, it's 3,500 feet. That's a lot of climbing. But in reality, if you're comfortable descending and descending very fast and very quickly, you could get pretty close to any fast bike split on this course. Pros are breaking two hours on this course or, or just over two hours. And when you think about a bike course like Chattanooga, for example, you know, I'll, I'll call that rolling. 
I don't think they're biking that fast in Chattanooga. Granted, Chattanooga is a little long. It's about a mile long. But this is a course where you're either going up or you're just flying downhill. Yeah, you're definitely right. And taking the climb aggressively, I think, would pay off. You know, you're somewhat, you're not really at elevation, but there, I think it's a little bit. It's a little thinner. It's It's a little thinner. Two, three thousand feet, roughly. So you can go a little bit faster. You know, the road surface is is good. I don't think it's a technical course. No, so it's not like you're turning, you know, 180 degree turns and or things like that. So you can really kind of hammer having a big gear for that downhill, I think pays off. Gustav Eden. So I saw some some film of him tearing down Snow Canyon. And he was just in arrow and he was hammering going downhill. He might have had a 55, 56 big ring up front. He he definitely did. He had to have something like that because I mean, I rode Snow Canyon the day before on <laughs> on an e-bike, just like a big cruiser. And I did not touch. So going down Snow Canyon, I uh I just I didn't touch the uh the brakes just to see how fast I would go. And I was completely upright and and I was going like 45, approaching 50 miles an hour. And I know that certain athletes, I mean, they told me that they they hit like over 50 miles an hour, you know, 55 miles an hour on that descent. So I mean, he was going faster than that. And, you know, if an athlete is only going to say 43 miles an hour, and then another athlete is going closer to 60 miles an hour. And I don't know if that, you know, if anybody hits 60, I think it's probable you know, they're going 10 miles an hour. If you're going 10 miles an hour faster than somebody for five minutes, that's a pretty big difference. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they'll start a mile ahead of you on the run. Definitely. Like you said, knowing the course is huge and knowing when to apply power strategically. I think next year is just having seen the course and knowing the descent. I think if athletes are aggressive on that climb without being stupid, that's important to do. No, this is a course where knowing it is is helpful. Knowing where to take, not take risks, but knowing where you can push it, but safely. However, you can go fast down Snow Canyon. It's not a technical descent. You just have to get comfortable going really, really, really fast. And I think one reason there was such a, a wide variety of bike splits between athletes who even typically bike similarly is because of that descent. It was windy and athletes, if you're not comfortable in the wind or if you're riding a deep front wheel, I mean, it's going to be twitchy and you might freak out. I know one athlete, Jason, he was descending and he saw two guys just right in front of him pull over on, on the descent. And they're like, we're waiting this one out. <laughs> it's it's hailing and it's windy. So we are going to just not roll the dice. And you know, in theory, these athletes should be solid cyclists because they qualified for the world champs. But even then, like if, if you're someone that lives and trains in Florida, like you literally have no experience descending like that. And exactly. so it, it, it boils down to the geographic location you live in too. Like anyone that lives out, out West or in the mountains or has the opportunity to, to really climb and, and descend on a mountain. And they have the ability to build their confidence in their bike handling ability going 50 plus miles an hour you're going to have the upper hand on this course. Absolutely. And Gustav Eden won two world champs in a row. And I would say that the bike courses were similar in spirit 
in Nice, you know, it was a crazy, dis- I mean, you climbed 3000 feet and then you descended and that descent was technical. Snow Canyon wasn't technical, but you know, it had the same kind of feel for it. Mm-hmm. And, and he knows how to ride that. Absolutely. He didn't do it on a road bike this time. He probably could have though. <laughs> he probably could have. With a four minute deficit or a four minute lead would have been close. I think you'd have done well on the road bike here too. So I guess Taylor Nib. Yes. Taylor Nib got third in the female race and she was on a road bike with round bottles, no arrow helmet and nutrition taped to her bike tube. (laughs) (laughs) Everything, everything they seemed not to do in triathlon, she did. And she did very well. Um, Granted, she might, may have been faster, but depending on what element she faced that day, it might've worked out well for her too. To be clear. I think she's just an incredible athlete. And right. You know, if we think about the differences between you know, a road bike with an optimized setup. I mean, her position is good on that road bike. You can achieve a pretty good aero position on a road bike. And the the penalty might be a couple minutes over 70.3. So would she have biked faster on a TT bike? Assuming she was comfortable on the TT bike, I mean, probably because I mean, you can shift. <laughs> so your position would be, even if it's the same, I mean, you could just shift better on a TT bike and it would be a little bit more aerodynamic because you want to have those bullhorns kind of hitting the wind. You know, we're talking about probably a couple minutes. Everything else was sort of a TT bike. I mean, the equipment was, was solid. I forget what wheel she rode, but they were disc though. Yeah. So she, she was riding the best equipment. Yeah. It was a road bike geometry. She probably achieved a similar, you know, X, Y coordinates, similar bike fit as she would on a TT bike. So, I mean, the only, issue would have been that would have slowed her down would be shifting. I don't, I don't know if she had bar end shifters or not, even though it was a road bike. I mean, the frame is going to be basically the same, the same aerodynamics. She had the deep wheels. I don't know. I, I didn't notice her bottle set up, but you know, she wore an arrow. She would have gone faster. I think <laughs> this is like, that's just physics. However, she wouldn't have gone that much faster. Most of it is the engine. And we know that she's a powerful athlete. And I mean, she showed up and, and crushed it. Yeah. I mean, some obviously she just came off the, the Olympic circuit, riding a road bike and, you know, jumped into her first 20.3. So it's not like she had hardly any time to probably, probably even had the opportunity to even get a triathlon bike. You know, if you think about the supply and demand right now, it's so challenging for, for us. I'd imagine it's difficult for just about anyone. Right. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if she has a bike sponsor. I'm sure she will. And I'm sure we'll see her on a, a true TT bike soon. Were you able to see any of the pros get off the bike by the time you got to St. George? No, I got there a little bit late. The top men were finishing. So saw Sam Long in the finish shoot. He was obviously happy. Uh, I missed Gustav Eden crossing. So I like literally got there at (laughs) just missed that. But I was able to see Lucy finish and that was exciting. She finally got a world championship title and she deserved it. You know, she lived, I heard that she lived in in St. George for quite a few weeks before the race. So she got a lot of experience on Snow Canyon Mm -hmm. and it paid off, you know, just, just like we're talking about, this is a course where if you just show up and ride it, you can go fast, but if you know it, I mean, you can basically ride it as fast as a, uh, you know, maybe a typical 70.3. Because you can flatten that course if you have the good, if you have appropriate gearing and you know how to allocate your effort, it could be a pretty fast bike. When we think about working triathletes, you know the athletes we coach, we had a pretty wide, we had a variety of bike performances, and I think part part of that was two of our actually 
faster athletes, <laughs> they had some mechanical issues and it Major. was pretty incredible just how unlucky <laughs> they were, but they made the best of it and smiled the whole time they were racing. But so one athlete, Anthony, he probably had the most disastrous situation. So he was riding and he was riding well, you know, he had a decent swim and, and he was, I would say typically Anthony would be a, a sub 220 bike guy, but his rear derailleur, I guess the cage, it's just snapped in half. I don't know how it happened. I don't know what the deal was. So he couldn't shift at all in the back. So his bike ended up, so so he pulled over and he's like, oh my God, like this is actually a big deal. So then he stood there for 15, 20 minutes and then the mechanics arrived, the on-course bike support van arrived and and they were like, yeah, you just have to pick a gear. <laughs> what gear do you want to ride the rest of this race in? And he was like, well, I guess the middle. <laughs> so he, they put his chain on the middle of the cassette, the middle cog, and he ascended Snow Canyon in a gear that was way too hard. And then he descended Snow Canyon in a gear that was way too easy. So, you know, he rode the course on a fixie, basically. And then Brian, another athlete, his bike. So in transition on race morning, you know, his bike would not shift up into the big ring. And we kind of knew he was having issues going into the race. And, you know, we were trying. So, so what happened was something happened on, on the flight in and basically the derailleur was shot. So he, we went to, so we, we fixed it. So we can make it so that it would stay in the big ring. And, you know, on this course, you would want it to stay in the big ring because, you know, the little ring, it's just, it's just obviously too small, but on race morning, it, it would not shift up. The mechanics in T1, they were able to basically affix his, you know, his front derailleur so that it stayed in the big ring. He also did the race in a gear that, that you know, his, his easiest gear was, was still too hard because it was... It was basically a one by setup, but he didn't have a big cassette in the back. So he might have had, you know, 25 or 26 in the back. So, you know, he was riding like a 50, 26 is the easiest gear. And going up Snow Canyon, that is not, I mean, you want it to be a little bit easier. Did you have a chance to look at their average cadence going up the canyon? Yeah. I mean, it was low. I mean, it was, it was definitely, you know, at, at times below 60 and watts that were above threshold. Not the best way to ride. <laughs> they sucked it up and they're like, hey, I'm going to finish and exactly. get through it. That's awesome. I mean, they they persevered. They, their bike splits were substantially slower than usual. It's to be expected when you don't have gearing. They ran well. The day was salvaged. And and like I said, if you just make it to the world champs, that's that's the victory. You know, whether you finish 100th or 150th in your age group, what's what's the difference? It's like a victory lap. Having said that, next year... <laughs> these issues, we're not going to have these issues. I mean, Brian needs a completely new bike because his bike is 15 years old and it's, it's time. And Anthony, hopefully will, he's pondering a new bike. You know, he's on sort of an entry level bike. He's an athlete who kind of deserves a, a, a better bike as do all of our athletes, but it's time for him to, <laughs> to level up too. Yeah. He's had some unfortunate luck just about at every race with mechanicals or flat tires. And it's, I know it's, it's almost amusing, but <laughs> it's, it's unbelievable. It really, is, it really is unbelievable. You know, once or twice. Okay. <laughs> once or twice in like 10 races, but if it's like 50% of your races, some major bike issue arises in the middle of the race. It's, it's just unlucky. Yeah. But, you know, he got them all out of the way. And from now on, I think that everything will go smoothly. <laughs> Definitely.
Moving into the run, I will say that was one of the hardest runs <laughs> I've ever done in my life. And I was like kind of okay with running a 122 until I started looking at the times that other people put down, especially people in my age group or, or even athletes. I just know that I can definitely outrun. And they're like, yeah, yeah, I ran 117. I'm like, how in the world did you run a 117 on that course? It was incredibly, you know, so my, my, um, training peak shows a 1600 foot gain, which I, that might be incorrect. Cause I think it was closer to 1300 feet. At least that's what was advertised either way. It was a hundred plus feet of gain per mile. And essentially it was just basically two big climbs. You go up for a couple of miles and then you just descend back down mm-hmm. to St. George downtown. The running uphill is is one thing, but running the downhills, and it wasn't like running downhill at a, like an average grade. It was pretty steep and it was wet. And again, it's kind of like one of those things where you, and I don't ever prescribe this, but you have to practice running fast downhills if you wanted to right. do well at this race and you wanted to like podium. You're also taking a risk of literally falling on your face and knocking your front teeth out. If you were to have any mess ups or if you if your quads gave out, a relentless run course, you're true to the world championship. You, you want to have that adverse course, but it was it was definitely unique and something that I've never experienced. So I posted up right kind of before the turnaround. So saw everybody a bunch of times, but but saw the athletes running downhill and the <laughs> the difference between athletes, their paces running down the hill. It, it was incredible. I mean, you had athletes tearing down the hill. You had athletes who looked like they were 120 years old and in pain with replaced knees hobbling down the hill, it can make a big difference. So, so that definitely played into the run splits. But I could just tell that, you know, if athletes took that hill, that downhill section too hard on the first lap, the second lap, they were hurting because I mean, that just destroys your quads. How you run downhill matters. You know, I would say conditions were great for the run. Otherwise, it was cool. There was some rain and drizzle. Temps were perfect. Yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah, it, it, the temps were perfect. There's is overcast, so no sun beating down on you. Um, but like, like I said, a little bit of rain, like a little, nice little drizzle, or you know that it was comfortable enough. It wasn't like soaking wet, but just enough to kind of keep you cool. It seemed like a spectator friendly course. The race basically happened entirely kind of within the the St. George city limits, I guess. I mean, you would run up to the parkway there, and that was that wasn't in the metro area, but you know, transition was right downtown. So it was pretty cool, cool venue. Um, it was fine getting around, you know, figuring out how to cross the course so that you can escape from athlete village and you're kind of barricaded in by the finish line and the transition area. But once you knew where to go, it was easy to get around and see athletes numerous times. So, you know, I saw certain athletes four times on the run, others twice it was fun to spectate. So I'm looking forward to, to next year. I don't know if maybe I'll race it. Maybe I'll, I'll just coach again, but it's a great venue. The only pain in the butt is the, that transition or, you know, transitions are in two separate places. That was a pain in the butt. Like we had some logistical issues going in. Uh, we were down a vehicle in our household. And so we had a couple of mechanical issues prior to the race, which we were able to get resolved. Actually all three, Jordan, Drew and Patrick all had mechanical issues that I helped them sort through before we got to transition or dropping our mm-hmm. bikes off. If you are in a house with multiple athletes and you only have one vehicle, it, it's pretty hard to transport the, the bikes from one to the other. I was kind of surprised they didn't have like tri-bike transport set up, at least the pickup near transition one. But I guess, it, you know, at some point you had to go back and take it somewhere else anyway. Um, mm-hmm. Either way, like it was, 
it, it just requires a little more thought. And as an athlete, you're pretty much running around all day prior to the race, dropping off bags, you know, dropping off your bike. And it, it, it's not what you want to be doing the day before a race. Right. It's just uncomfortable. And you want to just sit back, kick your feet up and relax. Exactly. I mean, it was tough for us. So we got an Airbnb near T1 because we thought, oh, well, it'd be nice to be near T1 in the morning. My my wife was nice enough to kind of shuttle shuttle us from the Air, Airbnb to the race start. Theoretically, the road was was closed, uh, you know, off of where our, our Airbnb was. But you know, you have to let traffic through. So so she was able to just drop us off right by T1. Then there's a fiasco. Like she couldn't get out <laughs> of of uh, like the neighborhood once the race started. So she was trying to drive to. T1 and you know we needed cars there in T1 cuz you know we had you know maybe 10 or 12 athletes at the Airbnb and she just couldn't so she had to, like all the roads were closed so she had a walk to <laughs> to the race start and then take a shuttle from T1 to T2 and then you know athletes nobody really drove you know we were supposed to have numerous uh, spouses drive drive cars to T2 so that we can drive everybody back with the bikes, but something was lost in translation. Uh, they only took one car. Alex was trapped and we, we were kind of trapped <laughs> in St. George after the race. Everybody was able to pile into a car and then my wife and I stayed back and we ended up hitching a ride back with Miguel's dad. And, and so, so it all worked out, but it was a little bit technical and extra stress, but that's just part of triathlon. Mm-hmm. The other thing I'll say too is race morning, they had different shuttle pickups and I read the information incorrectly, or at least it wasn't very clear where, so there was a mall about 10, five, 10 minutes from where we were staying. And mm-hmm. my assumption was if you get dropped off at that shuttle, it just takes you the race start. So we get on a bus and then we go to downtown St. George to get on another bus to go back over across town to transition one. So we were oh, going wow. back and forth race morning a little bit, which was probably okay because we were just sitting down rather than at transition early, just standing around looking at our bikes. But it was one of those things where even the shuttle service could have been a little bit more fluid as far as like where the pickups were and drop-offs. That way they weren't just going from one location to the other. It was just, you had multiple different destinations because really everyone was staying in different parts of town. Exactly. I mean, it's definitely difficult. I mean, world champs are big races and just logistically, I think it's tough to uh, to pull it off. And I think next year it might be worse because I think a lot of athletes who qualified maybe weren't able to show up. I could be wrong. Uh, I think a lot of slots went to Americans and because you know they had 200 slots. So Europeans who weren't able to come, I, I think that they're probably maybe replaced by American athletes. So it was definitely a weird year. And you know, one could argue there, there's a little bit of chatter about even the pro field at this race being maybe of a lower quality compared to prior years. You didn't have Jan Fredino. You you didn't have Lionel. You didn't have Sebastian Keenley wasn't there. We look at Nice, the top finishers. Rudy Von Berg wasn't there. Patrick Lang. So half those guys weren't even at Nice or any at 7.3 championship. You know, they kind of focus on the Ironman distance anyway. So I, I right. think at, at this point, you're almost separating the fields where they, they 
I think pretty soon you no longer can have one person dominate both distances. It, you're going to have different people that kind of cater towards the 70.3 distance and then the 140.6. Mm-hmm. I think there, there's going to be crossover for sure. But I think at the pointy end of the pro field, you're going to have people that separate themselves from the full distance. The 70.3 actually is, is probably more similar to an Olympic distance than an Ironman. So I think what you're saying could, could ring true, but I mean, there is substantial crossover because I mean, if you look at Jan, I mean, I don't know if he would have won here, who knows? Um, maybe he didn't show up because he didn't think he would. I mean, he still has those fast twitch muscles. I mean, he crushed, what was it? Challenge Miami this year. So he, the Collins cup, he had the fastest time. I have to think <laughs> that he would have been up there, but you know, you have, I mean, he's definitely in sort of the winter of his career. He has a maybe a couple of years left, although who knows, you have athletes able to perform deep into their forties now. Uh, just like a Tom Brady, he's what, 44 at this mm-hmm. point, And he's already <laughs> leading the NFL at touchdown passes or, or something. Exactly. Uh, Andy Potts going sub eight at Tulsa. He's mid forties. So these guys are definitely inspiring. And for whatever reason, uh, whether it's understanding and prioritizing recovery or modifying training so that you know you can still perform into your 40s maybe prioritizing swim and bike more we're seeing athletes able to compete longer so i'd be interested to see jan and and sort of what he does does he go out on top or does he stick around for a couple of years and and wait until he's you know maybe out of the top 10 because you know for him i mean a professional triathlete when they retire Obviously, prize money goes away. They're, they're maybe less visible or, or attractive to sponsors. I don't think he's hurting for money. I think he, he has enough to, to retire on, but I don't know. We'll, we'll see. I think there's something to be said for going out on top. You know, you have that mystique. And when people remember you, they don't, the years where you kind of fizzled at the tail end of your career. Mm-hmm. So you're always seen as kind of like a, a titan or a dominant player. But the goal for him was the Ironman World Championships, which may no longer be Kona. Right. And, you know, I guess we can end on that note is just talking about like where, where that goes. You know, I know the CEO of Ironman spoke at St. George just talking about, they're looking at every option. Hawaii might not open up to the public or be able to offer a venue for the race in February. And right. uh, you see a lot of different opinions out there. Some see Kona as this, that that's where the history is. And, but then some people look at like a world championship venue and it's like venues should rotate it's no different than the, the Olympics when you think about it, because Kona is one type of, of race. You know, you don't get any other elements unless the, the weather does change that year. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, it's uh, they have to do best for the business and you might just have to remove the race venue. Yeah, I think this year you have to go somewhere else. I think it's fine. I think there's this mystique around Kona. Certain athletes are never going to do well in Kona because it's hot. This year, you just got to switch it. It's going to have to be somewhere in the Southern Hemisphere or sort of near the equator. But, you know, you have Australia, New Zealand. It's those countries are probably not going to be open. You can't in February, you can't do a race really anywhere in the Northern Hemisphere. I mean, what do you do? Do you go to like Central America? Do you go to Florida? Like do you do it in Miami? Like, (laughs) I don't know. Yeah, I suppose Mexico or Central America would be, it, it stays warm, but yeah, even the waters might be cool, like in the Pacific and things like that. Yeah. I mean, Brazil could make sense, but I mean, COVID is really bad there. You know, you do South Africa, 
I don't know if I was Iron Man, you got to get in this world championships and you got to maximize the likelihood that it's going to happen. So if you have one year where it's not in Kona, I think that's fine. Moving forward, I'm sort of, I have mixed feelings about it, about having an alternating Ironman world championship because it's, I mean, Kona is iconic and people, you talk to the average Joe that they ask, oh, did you do the Ironman in Hawaii? Yep. That's Uh, what everyone knows. Yeah. So I doubt that they'll move it. The only way I could see them really moving it is if truly like the natives there or the local authorities, they're like, we're sick of this. We don't want you y'all here anymore. That wraps up this episode. If you want to contact us, you can reach me at Derek at workingtriathlete.com. Reach me at Conrad at workingtriathlete.com. Thanks for listening.